I'd like to see all my dead friends and family members and have a big party and a bonfire. And I hope that if I'm reincarnated, which will most likely happen, as I have a lot of bad karma with certain relatives I've fallen out with, that I don't encounter the same alcoholic, drama-laden control freaks that I've decided not to come in contact with now. Which, of course, I will. I don't want to see the people that I don't want to see. I hope to be recycled. Pie. I want lots and lots of pie. I mean, if there's a choice between regular heaven and pie heaven, I'm definitely choosing pie heaven. I mean, it might be a trick, but if it's not, boy oh boy! I hope that I can float around like a ghost for a month or so and visit my loved ones and make sure they're okay and getting over the grief. I'd also like the ability to scare the bejesus out of any lovers or bosses that they may have so I can help my loved ones out while my soul is traveling to wherever souls go to rest. But I do not want to be reincarnated because one life is hard enough. Thank you very much. I want to be 11 again and run into my brother's arms so he can give me a big bear hug. I'm terrified of our seemingly unconscious universe. Upon death, I hope my soul will become one with a larger consciousness. Perhaps God? And I can fertilize a spot of earth where a great oak will grow for children to play under. I hope I'm buried at sea, set afloat on a makeshift wooden raft covered in oils. And once I'm a significant distance from the launch ship, my closest friends will stand on the bow and begin shooting flaming arrows until the raft with my body on it is set ablaze. An ideal location for this to happen would be just off the shore of the island of Cape Horn. I hope and believe that my energy, or soul, will become part of the singular greater energy, God and other souls. It's like a lava lamp. The goop separates from the main blob, floats around for a little while, then re-emerges with the big blob over and over. However, I absolutely do not want to be reincarnated. I'm just about as overbaked as I can be. It would involve much scotch, illicit drugs, and I can eat all I want while losing weight. LOL! I would hope for bliss, but settle for peace. Those are real answers from Soul Web Web Pancake website to the question, what do you hope happens when you die? I thought it was an interesting question, you know, framed a little differently than perhaps we think about it when we think about it. Instead of saying, what do you think heaven will be like? What do you hope happens when you die? The answers fell into three distinct categories. One level of answer was the, the funny answer, like pie. Not pot, by the way, for those. The first source I was saying, pot? I hope there'll be lots of pot. I mean, I'm certain somebody would have answered that, but... It was pie, like chocolate cream. And, you know, if, so there were some answers like that. As long as there's lots of pie, I'll be, I'll be happy. And, and there was another set, sort of second set of answers was the, was the worm food answers. You know, I, I hope there'll be something, but there's not. And I'm just going to be worm food, fertilizer for next generations because you just end. And, and then there was a third category of answers. And those answers were... It's something better than what I have now. I hope that after I die, it'll be better than what's now. Now, what's interesting to me about those level of answers, which are the dominant ones, by the way, and I think probably how most of us would answer it, if I were to ask you today, what do you hope happens next week, your answers would be all across the map. You know, a, a wide variety of things, because every one of your life is 
significantly different. And so what the things you're going to pull out are going to be different. However, if I ask the question, what do you hope happens when you die? It, it becomes so broad and we lack the parameters of next Monday, you know, of what we want to see happen, that our answers fall into this category of better than it is now. But most of the betters have to do with things that we hope will be gone or desperately wish were true. There were a number of them that thing like, I would like my relationships to be healed. Because they would say, if I hope that after I die, the, the carnage that I've seen in my relationships, that that will be made better. That will be made right. There was that, I thought, telling answer, I hope for bliss, I'll settle for peace. You know, many of the answers focused on what I don't have now that I wish were true. And maybe, just maybe, when I die, those things, those lacks, those longings, those things I've always so desperately wanted and have yearned for, maybe then I'll actually get them. What is interesting to me about the question, and may not be interesting to you at all, is this, we give very little thought to the question, what do you hope happens after you die? And there's a number of reasons for that. I think one of them is because for many of us, we say, seriously? That's what we're going to talk about today. This Sunday morning, you're going to talk to me about what I hope happens after I die. My problems are Monday morning at 8 o'clock, and you're going to talk to me about what happens after I die. That's just great. Of course the answers are, oh, I hope for, you know, pie. Because I need actually answers for tomorrow, not for whenever. In a certain sense, I remember somebody saying this 20 years ago, and it still rings true to me, that in an existential society, which we are, the question seems almost obscene. Don't talk to me about heaven. Don't talk to me about eternity. Talk to me about today, tomorrow, next week. I'm saying I'd like my relationships to be healed after that, but what I really need is I really need them to be healed tomorrow because otherwise I keep living in it. Well, today what we're going to explore is this question, what, hope, what do you hope happens after you die? And there's two reasons why, two reasons that are intensely practical. Number one, as I spoke about a few weeks ago, like it or not, you and I will face that moment. It is absolutely inevitable. There are many different things that you're going to face that I'm not going to face. I'm going to face that you're not going to face. But we know, history has proven, that none of us misses that moment where our physical life stops. And so, the inevitability of it, the assuredness that we will face it, means that for every one of us, it becomes a practical issue. We like to put things off until next week or next month or next year. Or I don't have to worry about that yet. And that often leads us to be wholly unprepared for critical moments in our life. If you want to retire when you're 65, you can't start saving when you're 64. And when you, somebody says to you at 25, it's best to start putting money away, what we think is, that's 40 years from now. You've got to be kidding me. But you will likely face that day you will face the day of your death. We tend not to prepare for it well. 
Another thing is the nature of Christianity, and I'll explore this more to you right, right at the end of the message. The nature of Christianity is this. It is not an academic or an ethereal question, what happens after we die. The picture of Christianity is what we hope for and what God actually promises post-death, we begin to experience here if we're willing to. The character and nature of what eternity offers us is actually offered for us here too. And so once we get a grasp on the answer to that question, we begin to shape our lives here to live that way. In a certain sense, eternity has already begun. And we are on a trajectory one way or another. So that's the question we'll explore because we tend to put it off and today with the help of Soul Pancake, it's before us. As I thought about it, I thought, okay, if, if I was going to prepare for this, other than prepare for my death, other than buying life insurance, what are the questions I need to explore? Well, there are three, and I'm going to walk through this. Basically, three questions we need to explore. And the nature of these questions is, at any point, if you answer no, you, you sort of stop there. The first question is, is there life after the grave? Now, if you answer no, the questions stop because your life is set in the context of your time on this earth, period. And, and you have a couple options. And if you say, look, uh, expiration date. Could be tomorrow, could be 30 years, but I'm going to end, and that's going to be it. Nothing more. Then the context of your life is what you, this time on your earth until your body ceases to function. And so you have a couple options. What you can do with that, you can choose hedonism. Uh, you know what? You sort of look like a, a, a ride pass to Disney World. I got nine hours. I'm going to ride as many rides as possible. And I'm going to avoid certain things, like it's a small world. So, life is a big theme park. I'm going to try to avoid pain and accentuate pleasure. I mean, gee, if that's all there is, why not? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Actually says that in the Bible. Look it up one of your options. Another option to say, look, I only got 70 years here. I want to do as much good, defined however I define it, as much good as possible. I want to have some impact. You know, if I'm going to expire here, then the only thing I leave behind is my memory. And there's something about us that wants our memory to go on. And so we said, well, my 70 years, I'm going to try to do some stuff that allow my memory to go on. And people think fondly, oh, he was so wonderful. Look how he changed the world. Or, your third option, really, is indifference. Whatever. I shoot for apathy. I ain't gonna, you know, it doesn't matter one way or another. In different universe, in different life, I'm just gonna sort of wander through it. Sort of like I'm window shopping. I'm in no hurry. If that looks interesting, I'll go there. If I get bored with that, I'll stop that. These three, quite honestly, these three are very popular views of how to live life. However, for most people, it's not really drawn out of the fact that they believe there's no life after the grave. It's drawn out of the fact that they don't think about if there's life after the grave. If you answer yes to the question that you think there is life after the grave, then you've got a couple of more questions to explore. A few weeks ago, I said to you, can I prove to you that there's life after the grave? The answer is no. Absolutely not. But just for a moment, I want to tell you three reasons very quickly why I think there's life after the grave, for what it's worth. One of them is, I believe in Jesus. Now, now you need to understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying, 
I believe in Jesus, I'm a religious person, so I believe in this. I mean, literally, I believe in Jesus and didn't used to. There came a point in my life where I believed that Jesus was who he said. There was a man who I believed was the son of God who came to earth and went from being an atheist to becoming a theist, believing that Jesus actually was the God who orchestrated the universe. I once didn't believe that, and now I did. And that reshaped my sense of how I would look at the world. I picked up a Bible and read it. I talked to some people. I considered the world around me. I became convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. I'll say this just briefly. If you're in a place where you're thinking, I, I have no idea if there's life after a grave. One of the clues is whether or not this guy who has made this massive impact in the world is actually who he said he was. And I encourage you to do what I did. Pick up a Bible. We have Bibles sitting right back there on that table. If you don't have one, pick one up. And I, I read one of the four Gospels. There's four stories of the life of Jesus and they're in the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't know where they are, we should you go to the table of contents, find the page, read one of them. It's in, here, again, I want to repeat this. You're going to face death. You and I all are. I'm not a prophet. This is just matter of fact. We're all going to face death. And so it behooves you because it drastically affects how you live to consider whether this guy who claimed to be God is actually who he said he was. If you determine that he is, it will reshape the questions in your head. So, number one, I, I believed in Jesus. I came to a point where I believed in Jesus. And he said that there's an eternity. He said over and over again that life exists after the grave. And so, because I believe he's who he said he was, that had great weight with me. The third reason why I think there's life after the grave is to me it seems intuitively implausible that life simply ends at the grave. Now, but the nature of intuitive arguments is they are unprovable. It means there is a sense. There's a sense to me that it's implausible that life ends at the grave. Why? There appears to be this this, as we go through our life, we never see perfection. We never see so in the fullness the things that we hope for. We just see elements of it. We see pieces of it, types of it, so to speak. Well, where's the real thing? Where is this, this sense of wholeness and beauty and completeness? It, it, where did that come from other than that, that it must exist somewhere? So to me, it seems intuitively implausible that life doesn't go beyond the grave. But let's say, let's say you decide, okay, either, yeah, I think there's life after the grave, which most people do. Most people believe that. Or you say, I don't know, but I'm willing to go on to question two. Off we go. If there's life after the grave, then the question is, are there conditions? Is there a way of life? Are there choices that affect the quality? of life after the grave. Here's one level of, one answer that somebody had that essentially addresses that question. On Soul Pancake, somebody said, I hope I appear before God in heaven to hear. Yeah, I do exist. I'm glad you had a good time experiencing creation directly and not in church asking me for favors. And that view is sort of like, there's not really any criteria for changing the quality of your afterlife. In fact, all those people who are out there <laughs> trying to figure out, act a certain way, go to church, Lord, I hope I get before God, and he says, they just wasted their time. Are there conditions that affect what my afterlife is like? There are some that say, no, 
as a, as a friend, years, and years ago, I had this conversation with him about eternity. And, and their view was everybody, everybody, by this I mean everybody, and by the way, I, later I pulled the Hitler card out on him, and I still got the same answer. Everybody ends up in an eternal place of peace and joy. Everybody. To which I said, everybody? They said, everybody. You're getting my point, aren't you? Everybody. And so I started pushing on it and pushing on it. And then I said, Hitler. You know, it's your ultimate. Hitler. And he said, yes, his path will just be longer. And I'm thinking, stop his path, <laughs> you know? His path will just be longer. And this, by the way, this is the view of, sort of, 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 of karma is that everybody in the end gets to a certain place, and, and I'll, I'll explore that a little bit more with you in the next section, but in the end, there's really no conditions. It seems very few of us actually believe there are no conditions. If we believe there's an afterlife, there are no conditions that affect whether we're in a, a good place or a bad place. It seems grossly unfair. You know, it, it seems like, is this the only place in our life where what you do absolutely doesn't matter? Is it really true that I could live any way I wanted, run roughshod over anybody, that somebody else could be Mother Teresa, and it would have absolutely no difference? There's no conditions. Everybody gets peace and happiness. It doesn't matter what they do. I don't know. To me, it seems like, okay, you might hope for that. It doesn't seem possibly true that it's that simple. In fact, very few people believe that. Most people believe there's an afterlife, most. And there are conditions. Your lifestyle affects whether you get there. And then the question becomes, what are those conditions? What are the conditions that affect my afterlife, whether it's good or bad? And we have a couple of views of this. One of the views of this is very popular. There are conditions. And the conditions are how good you are, and I'm good enough. How do I know? I just do. And what we do is, is the more and the more popular we look at is like a scale. It's a scale, and it's, you know, it can weight either way. And the scale, if, it, if I'm 51% to the good, then I have a happy, blissful afterlife. 49%, I'm toast. And so we sort of figure it out. I go, okay, how, what's, my, what's my percentage? Well, God has got up there with a pen, and he's marking it off, and he gets to Richard, and Richard gets a 62, which would be bad in math, but it's awesome for eternity. So he's in. And then he comes to me, and he's marking it off, and 49.879. Wow. Is there any extra credit? No, it's semester's over. Sorry. I don't know. Really? That's the conditions. I'm going to add it up. And the truth is, when we look at our life, the only one we think is below 50, really, is Hitler. And he's way below. It's like everybody else has got a 90. There was a, a, a recent study of a high school students. 90% believed they were above average intelligence. Do the math. <laughs> Can't be true. If you ask the question, is there a heaven? Yeah, I think there's a heaven. Do you think your conditions? Yeah, yeah, you have to be a good person. Are you in? Yeah. Sure. 99% of the people who believe in heaven will say, I'm good enough. There are others who are not, but they're not me. 
the karma view of it is more like, well, there's no, the conditions are, they're hard. You have to end up being perfect, but you have forever to keep doing it. You just keep getting sent back over and over again until you get it right. I think the demoralizing thing to me is that view is you keep working harder and harder and harder. I've yet to see the person who's in that final stage. I think that's the problem. I've yet to see the person in that final stage who's actually made it. But theoretically, I have a hard, struggling life. At points, I'm guessing I'm a cockroach. You know, and, and I keep working and working and working. And you know what I get in the end? Oblivion. I struggle, and the only hope is to be swallowed up. Like that in the lava lamp. Swallowed up. What I would tell you is that I want to present to you the picture that Christianity presents. And very simply, the picture that Christianity presents of, yes, there's a heaven, there's an afterlife, yes, there are conditions that affect what it's like and whether it's peace and bliss or not, and here they are. And I'm going to read a passage in the Gospel of John, one of the accounts of Jesus, and it's a passage that if you've ever watched a football game and seen a guy with a rainbow wig on, he has this up on it. Where has he gone? Has anybody seen the rainbow wig guy? I think he's gone. Seriously. It's kind of disappointing. It was a staple. This is what his sign had on it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. I mean, it seems sort of stark, but this is the picture Christianity paints. It says there's, there's a condition that affects the nature of your afterlife, and it is, do you believe in Jesus? But there's a why below that. There's a why below that, that answer. The passage says that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in in order to save the world. It assumes it needs saving. See, the underlying answer to this is that there's something wrong. That quite honestly, our lives are not above the grade. That humanity on its own stands separated from God. That we already are outside of the pale. P-A-L-E, not P-I-L. And something has to happen. The record of the Bible, and honestly, is it not the record of our own hearts when we really think about it? Is that no one lives well enough to earn their way before a holy and beautiful and perfect God. Honestly, if I'm grading my exam, I was being really generous. 48.8? I don't think so. Seriously. I know what I'm like. I imagine myself, I imagine myself standing before the God of the universe. And he says, before you is an eternity of bliss and peace for those whose lives fit that. How about you? And I stare into that place of beauty and peace and bliss and completeness and wholeness and I think, that's not me. And then I play back through my life and think, I, I guess 
I lack the substance to do this. Then I'm right. About five years ago, a good friend of mine died. And he died seemingly at the wrong time. None of us were ready for it, least of all his wife and his children. He was a good man, relatively speaking. If he and I were graded together, I'm pretty sure he was coming out higher. He was a good man. And I'll never forget, it was probably a month after the diagnosis, which was dire. And he looked me in the eyes and he said, Bruce, I don't think I've done enough. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, he started to detail his life. He started to rip through the way he lived. And he said, I, seriously, he goes, who do I care about? And I would say, but you've cared about this person, this person. Bruce, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. What have I done? There are people that are homeless, that are starving. What, what have I done? He's like, seriously, I get to the end of my life and... I've not done enough. And I walked him through that and it's a number of others and it wasn't easy because he was really smart. He was much smarter than I, than I am. And so he was able to knock away a lot of my quick answers to it. In the end though, myself and a number of others brought him to the place which he already knew, which is that, you know, you're actually right. None of us if we really examine hard, live in such a way that we could stand before the God of the universe and say, oh yeah, no question, I'm in. Hitler's not, I'm in. Because I'm awesome, quite honestly. Eternity of peace and bliss and beauty and wholeness and love will be enhanced by my presence. Seriously. Anybody want to take up that bet? This is why this passage is here. This is why the gospel is here. The beauty of the gospel is the love of a God who saw us fall short of what we were created for. Because those yearnings and those longings, those are real. They're clues to what we were made for. And he saw us fall, fall consistently short of those things. And he saw us drift away from the paradise he made us for. And he saw us with absolutely no way back. And so he came to the rescue and entered space and time and hung on a cross and died for the sins of of everyone and then said God so loved the world that he gave his only son that anybody who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life and then he said come I, I usher you in begin a new journey in relationship with me where eternity starts now and in the end you will enter a place prepared for you cleansed and whole, not by your own doing, but by the doing of God who ushers you in. There's a passage in the end of the Bible. The last book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. And in that passage, in two short verses, it pictures what God made us for. And as I read it again this week, it struck me that all those answers on soul pancake and the answers we give of what we hope for, they're actually resonating to what God wants to give us. And here is the passage. In Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4, it says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. 
They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So the reason why we hope for it is it's possible. And the nature of the gospel and what's offered to each one of us is a God who will come and say, I will, I will forgive you and now I will usher you in from this moment to a new way of life. And you can experience in part what you will experience in whole on the other side of your grade. It is not out of character. It can actually be in character. You see the reshaping that God intends to do to our hearts is to make us into the sort of people who no longer perform works of righteousness to be okay with God, who no longer have to evaluate us against others and compare it, but who can see ourselves as fully forgiven, fully loved, and then get that picture of a place where crying and mourning and pain cease. What happens when we embrace that? Number one, our hope is sure because we do not face death on our own. We face it with the Savior who promises us to give us eternal life. But number two, it reshapes how we look at the world right now because we say, that's what I was made for. That's what you were made for. You were made for a place where pain is gone, where life resonates. One of the knocks against Christianity in centuries past was its pie in the sky. The, as Mark said, the opiate of the masses. Tell them they'll get heaven later, we can do anything to them now. Tell them we'll get heaven later and it won't affect how their life lives now. That's not Christianity. It's not fire insurance. Christianity is the remaking of the soul that longs to see beauty, bliss, peace, and contentment happen now because it's what we're planned for and what we're going to. Last night, I watched a movie, Blindside. It's got sappy parts. It does. But it's based on a true story, and it is powerful about one homeless kid that one family took into their home, and his life was reshaped. See, when the gospel penetrates our soul, really penetrates our soul, we say... I'm made for a place where pain goes away. Mine and his and hers. And so then we look at the places where brokenness reigns and we want to see it different now. And so then our heart breaks for the, the homeless. And it breaks for the hungry. And it breaks for the lonely and it breaks for the miserable, and it breaks for those whose relationships have just gone sour because we were made for peace and we were made for wholeness. That's what God has for your life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in it will not perish but have eternal life, and eternal life starts now. I invite you in. If, if you're someone who, I think I said this last week, I have serious short-term memory loss, but if you're someone who walks in our doors and says, you know, I need a little bit of pick-me-up, a little bit of a 
spiritual fine-tuning. Uh, I got nothing for you. If you'd like to see your life change from the inside out, that's what God has for you. Forgiveness and the reshaping of your heart. Don't stand on the edge picking at the crumbs. He's offering you real life. If you have questions about that today, I encourage you to talk to somebody, to pray with someone afterwards. Because every one of us will face that moment of reckoning. And God's calling you to a place of beauty on this side and on the other side. Jesus is the way to it. Also, it strikes me for every one of us who's a follower of Jesus now, we're a follower, and we know it deep down, we're a follower because, not because we graded 78 in the exam, but because he loves us and forgave us. And yet we still try to prove our worth. And it works badly against us. And it works badly against the restoration of the world. Because then we just think, have I done enough? Rather than say, God, you have made me for beauty and for peace and for bliss. And what is before me? What stands before me in need of restoration? Who stands before me in need of hope? Whatever you place before me, there I will weigh in heart and soul so that the beauty of your gospel becomes true in their life. This is the impact God intends us to have as we consider what happens after we die. Let's pray. Lord, lead us to a place before you where we could acknowledge our deep need for forgiveness and our deep need for wholeness and completeness and the understanding that in and of ourselves we simply cannot get there. I think of that place where you said to your disciples, I am the way and you know the way. And one of them said, we we have no idea what the way is, Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way. Follow me. Connect your life to mine and I will lead you to that place that your heart longs for. Would you remake our souls today? Yes, to know that the eternity awaits us, but to live in the context of that so that beauty and peace and bliss flows through our souls and all those you bring before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.